Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's episode, I am talking to Jonathan Downey, or JD, from Street Feast. And it was probably about six months ago that I found myself in Dinerama in Shoreditch, and the music was pumping, I had a nice craft beer in my hand, and I thought, I need to find out who is behind this incredible space. And sure enough, the world's disused car parks, markets, and office blocks need Jonathan Downey. In Street Feast, he's taken the idea of street food and bars to a whole new level. At night, what were neglected sites come alive with tantalising smells of pizza and steamed buns and tacos and chicken wings, along with a buzz of conversation and the glowing light boxes of all shapes and sizes. The four very different street feasts bring together speciality bars and food traders who each do just one thing and do it really, really well. And it was because London in the 1990s wasn't doing nightlife well that Jonathan decided to combine his corporate lawyer role with a new career as a bar and club operator. It was a pretty crazy thing to do, suited and booted by day and scrubbing walls by night. But it worked for a while until the inevitable ouch moment arrived. But when that came, Jonathan freed himself up to work on more amazing hospitality ideas, like milk and honey and food fights and taco wars. So sit back, let your mouth water and enjoy this incredible journey. Jonathan, thank you so much. By the way, is it Jonathan or JD? I don't know. Is it JD once you know people? Yeah, pretty much. Most people call me JD. Do they? Okay. Yeah. Well, by the end, I'll, I'll call you JD. But Jonathan, no, uh, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Uh, very much appreciated. You're welcome. It's my first ever one. Is it? Okay, <laughs> excellent. Well, uh, yeah, let's see. Let's hope, hope it's fun. Uh, before we start, can you just say where in the world are we? I've done these in, in sort of the middle of the countryside interviewing farmers and coffee roasters, but where on planet Earth are we? Uh, we're in our London Union offices in the heart of Shoreditch, East EC2 postcode, EC2A, it's at the heart of the tech city uh, in London. Um, and we're a few hundred yards from one of our biggest sites, which is Dinerama. So it's a good location for us. Amazing. How long have you been here? Three years now. And we just used to be around the corner for a couple of years before that. And okay. we were in a wee work for a while in between offices. Uh, okay, excellent. Good. Um, we'll come to uh, Dinerama, which is which is awesome. And one of the reasons that I'm here is wanted to chat to you about it. But if you don't mind, I want to start a little bit earlier and just chat about how you got into hospitality. So your first memories, I think, was it because you've done all sorts from bars to restaurants. Uh, yeah. But was it the, the Manchester club scene? Was that where it all began? Well, well I, think, I think anyone who works in hospitality is probably got some kind of hospitality gene in them, you know. Um, I never grew up in a pub or around that. I was uh, recently away on holiday and explained to some friends, the first time I ever ate in a restaurant, I was 19 years old in Boston, 
uh, went to a pizza restaurant. I was working out there one summer, and I'd literally never eaten in a restaurant since uh, before that. Sorry, um, I mean I had fish and chips from the chippy and stuff like that, but never eaten in a restaurant and um, uh, never went, never really drank until I was kind of in my early twenties. Didn't really drink at university much or anything like that. So. Um, you know, wasn't kind of like fascinated or intrigued by the bar scene, but I was 17 when the Hacienda opened and I can still remember going there for the first few times and really getting into it and just thinking this was something special and amazing. Well, that was kind of the music rather than food and drink and just that kind of going out and, you know, finding out things about yourself. So, um, and I think there's a lot of, lot of things were happening in Manchester in the sort of late eighties, early nineties. It was a fantastic club scene and then it became a really cool bar scene. The Gay Village happened in Manchester and that was brilliant at the time. It just felt like something that didn't exist anywhere else, really. Certainly not in Europe, I felt that anyway. And it was so vibrant and different and uh, the music, every, every bar or restaurant or cafe or wherever it was in Manchester at the time that you went in had a great sound system and really good music. And I was just noticing that and I've just come back from five days in Ibiza and it's exactly the same there. Everywhere you go in Ibiza, everyone's got a great sound system and everyone's playing really cool music. And it, it, that's what Manchester felt like to me in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. And I wanted to bring a bit of that to London when I moved here in 1990. OK. It's interesting how they seem to get it right abroad. I was skiing a few months ago and uh, there was a sort of sundowners bar as you come down the slope. And every evening about four o'clock as people were emptying the mountain, the music would be blasting out. And the atmosphere it created was just incredible. You couldn't yeah. ski past without popping in and having a beer. Yeah. People dancing on the tables and you think, yeah. and we'll, we'll come back to it probably on UK regulation and why we're not as good at that. But uh, yeah, we miss out on, on a lot of opportunities to create the vibe. Yeah. But before we go there, so um, you had a, a sort of pre-hospitality to career though, legal yeah. career, I think. I, I was, well, I, I studied law, went to Guildford Law College, uh, came to work in the city at one of the big firms, uh, did that for about seven, eight years, really enjoyed it, got to spend nearly a year in Hong Kong, got to spend a couple of years in Abu Dhabi opening the office there on an expat deal, you know, you don't pay tax, your accommodation's covered. And I came back to London in late 96 with kind of like a pile of expat cash, bought a flat and then a year later opened my first bar. And um, I just kind of wanted to do that for a while. Um, in Abu Dhabi, I'd met some friends who were hotel managers and we decided to, we got together and decided we wanted to open a hotel. And there's some great ideas for hotels. Well, nobody was doing this, nobody was doing that. We could do this, we could do that. But we didn't know anything about business and we didn't have anything like the money we needed to open a hotel. So I suggested we try a bar first. And we opened in Clerkenwell, just down the road from here, EC1, in uh, September 97. And, you know, I think... We put in a hundred thousand between four of us, and we borrowed a seventy-five thousand from the bank, and we we opened a what was called Match Match EC One, and it was very much in the style of uh, a, a Manchester bar at the time, um, from the interior design to the sort of the importance of music, but also what we then added to that was like these really high-end quality, sort of like uh, cocktails where we're using fresh juices which weren't that common at the time um, unless you went to the Atlantic bar or somewhere like that but you had to get through that past that guy on the door and I want to kind of democratise those quality drinking and bring those to the high street albeit a high street in the middle of nowhere at the time really because it was a bit of a, a dead zone that bit of London in 97 um, yeah. between sort of like the city and the West End and was that pretty common that when the drink scene then, I think you, I've heard you say before that it had a pretty, not even a crappy reputation, you'd experienced it. You came here, a city lawyer, thinking I'm going to find some cool bars like Manchester, yeah. but the reality is they were a bit crap. Yeah, so. it was. I couldn't believe it when I moved to London. At the end of my, I mean, I felt 
fantastic. Coming from my background, working at one of those really smart city firms um, and, you know, getting my suit on and, you know, sort of coming into bank and marching up Moorgate to the office and thinking, this is great, I'm going to be an international corporate lawyer. And uh, getting into the office and working hard that first week. And then when you're training as a solicitor, you um, you share an office with a partner. And at the end of the week, the partner says, let's go and have a drink. And it's like, great, I'm in London, we're going to go have a drink in the city with a partner. I mean, yeah. You know, we went out of the office and we went straight across the street and downstairs into a Balls Brothers or a Davies, I can't remember what it was. And I just couldn't believe this was like the end of the week. For me, celebration. Sort of, there's only men in there. They were all a certain age. You could get one ale in a tankard. You could get red wine or white wine and there were crackers and carrots. And that's kind of, there's no music. And that was the bar experience at the end of my first week as a, you know, trainee lawyer in London. I was just absolutely gutted. And I thought, this can't be it, you know. And um, so I set about trying to find some scene, some nightlife, because that's March 1990. Manchester was probably the best place on the planet right then, if you were in your early 20s. And like going out, and I was living in London. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah, yeah I'd, got, I'd moved at the wrong time. But um, so I used to go back every two weeks to watch the football and to go out, and just you know really enjoying that scene up there. And uh, found very little like it in London, um, it, where it was kind of becoming all bar one and pitch and piano, you know, which were uh, new and revolutionary, I suppose, at the time. But they weren't really for me. They weren't exciting places to go out, slug and lettuce. You know, and I've never really been a pub guy. I mean, I, I like going to some great pubs and I've had some great times in some great pubs, but, um, and no nightclubs that I liked. When we ended up going uh, to a place called Heaven, which on a Friday night was a big gay night. I used to go with my girlfriend there. It was fantastic. The music was fantastic. She never got hassled. And that felt to me the closest to a night out in Manchester that uh, I could get. And we used to go there quite a lot, actually. Um, but I suppose that whole time of being a little bit disappointed with what was going on in London, back of my mind maybe without realising it, thought well, there's an opportunity here and somebody should do something to... Yeah, sowing the seeds. Yeah. And, and then by, by contrast, when you were in uh, Hong Kong, I think it was, was it? That, well, that mm. was the G&T moment where yeah. you went, okay, so not all drinks need that, to be that, that was warm bit, and brown. Exactly, that was a bit of an epiphany moment because I'd never been a big or regular drinker, never drank beer as a kid. I think the first time again I drank beer and enjoyed a glass of beer. I was 19 in Boston and it was a keg party. I mean, growing up where I grew up, you could get a pint of harp or skull or something like that and you wouldn't, wouldn't go near that now, you know. But that was kind of the choice. And so, um, um, I forgot what I was gonna say. Hong Kong. Hong Kong, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I went to Hong Kong and I remember my first day arriving in Hong Kong at the airport and that amazing, in the old airport, that amazing fly-in. I was met at the airport by the firm's driver it's in the back of the car and the phone rings, the, the um, car phone rings. This is 1991, remember, so that was a big deal. It's a phone in the car. <laughs> and the driver answers, says, it's for you, Mr. Downey. I was like, oh, I'm on, yeah, I'm on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so I answered the phone, and it's my predecessor who I was taking over from, and he said, listen, we're going for drinks at the captain's bar at the Mandarin Oriental. See you there at 6 o'clock. The driver dropped me at my flat. I remember going to like the 26th or the 36th floor of my flat and looking out over Hong Kong Harbour and thinking... Fuck, I've made it. This is awesome. Still not qualified as a solicitor, you know. Still a lowly trainee photocopying and things. First thing I did was ring my mum and tell her about it. <laughs> Second thing yeah. I did, 
Just get showered, get changed, and get down to the captain's bar. I remember ordering a gin and tonic in there. And you've got to remember, again, this is the era when if you order a gin and tonic, and this still happens all over the UK, you'd say ice and lemon with that. Do you want ice and lemon? Of course one ice and lemon. It's a fucking gin and tonic. <laughs> so, but this gin and tonic came in this really beautiful crystal sort of cut glass uh, glass. Loads of big clear ice cubes in there, a big wedge of lime, you know, a uh, good slug of gin and the tonic on the side. And I just thought that's, and you know, like a nice metal stirrer, I think, or a glass stirrer, I can't remember. And I just thought, wow, that's what a gin and tonic can be like. And I've never had anything like that before. And it was a moment of realising the difference between kind of like everyday mundane and, and really good. But the really good was quite easy to achieve. So I think that was that was a key moment for me in, in sort of like my drinks education or my, uh, you know, I was going to say obsession. It's not really an obsession, but my kind of passion for wanting to make and democratise quality drinking. Yeah. It seems strange. It's a common theme of these podcasts, and it doesn't matter. I was, I was chatting about British wine last week and how we were so late onto the British wine scene. Yeah. But actually, once we did it, we innovated and we learned really quickly. And now we've got, you know, British wine beating a lot of the kind of champagnes. Uh, we've had the same with... Um, I don't know, chocolate. I was with William Curley and we were chatting all about uh, the history of chocolate on the continent. And then again, you know, we were really late to catch up. It seems once we do catch up, we seem to learn fast and we've got a much better scene now. But why do you think it was so poor at that time? I don't know. I think I think we're absolutely brilliant at taking ideas and inspiration on food and drink from other countries and, and evolving them and developing them, making them our own. And you, you, you see a lot of criticism these days for... Um, cultural appropriation I think that's that's what Britain is we are a, a nation of immigrants and our food culture now especially in the big cities is so interesting and exciting and drink culture because of immigration I mean 15 years ago you couldn't get a decent coffee anywhere in London I mean you literally couldn't and um, the reason there are so many great coffee shops in London now I think this could be nonsense it's because of all of the Aussies and Kiwis that have been coming here on six month or two year visas or whatever they get and bringing the desire for that coffee culture with them you know and so I think we do take a while to catch on sometimes but once we do find something good we really latch onto it and and I think the, the difference is a bit like you know it's a bit like the Beatles and the Stones were criticised for appropriating black music and yes they did and they but they turned it into their own uh, thing too and, and made it you know in some respects better or more exciting or more marketable to a different audience than you know the original, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think um, the more it happens, the better for me. Because if you look, for instance, I mean, I've just again spent five days in Spain. Every Spanish restaurant you go to, you know, you get it's, it's the same menu, and you know, there's not really anyone there doing anything different unless they're from outside. And you, you know, my parents have lived. My mum still lives in France for like the nearly thirty years now. I spent a lot of time in France. You know, and you just, every restaurant is the same and it's all very rigid. And it, and after a while, it gets boring. You know, it's familiar and it's, you know, it's comforting and it's whatever, but it's boring for me. And I just, I'm constantly, you know, interested and excited by what might be new or might be a bit different. Mm. I've been envious many times. There's a particular restaurant in Mallorca that I've been to a few times, which is lovely. It's in one of those squares, lovely food. 
Uh, but I remember every time I go there, it's exactly the same waiter and exactly the same menu year yeah. after year after year. And I think as an operator, that's the dream scenario, but you can't yeah. get away with it in this country. You you know, we change our menu three or four times a year and obviously the team are more transient. Yeah, so. you can't go. Even if you look at a restaurant group like Hawksmoor, you know, where they are, they are a steak place. That's what their brand is. Even they can't stand still. They're constantly innovating on the drink side. They brought in a brilliant seafood menu with Mitch Tonks a few years ago. Um, you know, they're constantly coming at great, clever stuff on desserts they're, they're always innovating and new starters and you know and i think i don't know if we just get bored quickly as a nation generally or or which i i don't think the customers get that bored i think it's kind of the owners operators who get bored and, and want to be doing something new and something different and that's what drives the innovation and the creativity yeah i think people leave if you've got a good team people leave unless you give them that constant challenge otherwise they get bored as well mm. so your team get bored and they go on to different places so you've got to innovate yeah. so um you'd been inspired then you'd seen these this, this amazing booze in hong kong you're back in london and, and unlike most people who just whinge about it you decide to set up your own place so match was uh was pretty much instantaneously successful i think and were you running it as well as being a lawyer at the time yeah, it, it didn't feel instantaneous i mean yeah i i, well, I opened my first bar on kind of like in the in the evenings and on the weekends did a lot of the, you know, uh, the sort of like the uh, preparatory building work by myself with a friend who came down from my hometown, um, you know, digging out. We had to, we didn't have enough space for a kitchen and the toilet, so we thought we need both. <laughs> Greedy. So we had to dig it down like a metre to, and then stack the toilets on the kitchen and we did all that ourselves and scrubbed all the walls to get back to the bare brick and stuff like that. So... Um, well, that was just good fun. That was, you know, a really exciting time where you felt like you're building your own place. And we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, 175000 sounds like a lot, but it wasn't when we were putting something in from scratch. Um, I've forgotten what the question is again. I'll do this quite a lot, actually. <laughs> no, don't worry. No, I've forgotten now as well. Uh, yeah, so were you, were you running it alongside the, uh, the legal firm as well? Yeah, and, and then so yeah, how long did it take right. to take off? So I was enjoying being a lawyer. I really was enjoying being a lawyer. I really enjoyed working with very clever people who were, like, were good at what they do and, you know, were kind of high achievers and challenged you constantly to, you know, it's quite a brainy thing to do. And, um, uh, but I wanted to, I wanted to do more. I wasn't, uh, and, you know, I wasn't, I was engaged in what I was doing, but it wasn't exciting. It wasn't interesting. I just felt like there was a lot more I could do. So I wanted to get a side gig on and off we went with the bar and, uh, it, we opened it, um, one night, and I can still remember in Clerkenwell. The only thing that was really open in Clerkenwell at the time was St John, round the corner on St John Street, and uh, there were quite a few architects around there, and a lot of soon-to-be lofts, but not really anybody, any residents. Um, and I remember standing, in, you know, outside the, on Clerkenwell Road, looking at one side of the street and looking down the other, and thinking, "Where is everybody?" But um, we were fortunate with our timing because the Evening Standard Bar of the Year was kind of like the big bar award back then. Time Out wasn't doing one, I don't think, uh, at that stage. Maybe it was. Um, and Edward Sullivan from the Eden Standard came in very early on and really liked the bar. And uh, and then we got shortlisted for Bar of the Year, which just gave us a massive boost. And then, like, two weeks later or three weeks later, it announced we were Evening Standard Bar of the Year. And I, in our first, like, four or five months. Amazing. So it really made a big difference to us that... Because you were doing something different? Yeah, we were definitely doing something that... Uh, yeah, definitely doing something different. I think we were also lucky at the time, so it's important to mention, there was a bit of a zeitgeist going on. It's like um, four or five of us doing the similar or the same thing at the same time. So Home was a cool new bar that opened just down the road here in Shoreditch. We opened in EC1. If you keep going west, you got to sort of Alphabet and Soho. 
had been open a few months. That was a really great bar with music and cocktails. And then the Met Bar was really important to the development of what we were doing because they opened a couple of months before us um, and they had a great music and a uh, scene and a great cocktail programme. And they also had all this kind of like celebrity uh, visitors and that was getting in the press and everyone was drinking a cosmopolitan or a french martini or whatever it was and that suddenly became like a cool thing to do and that's exactly what we were doing really at the same time not no one was copying anyone else we were just we all it was a zeitgeist mm. and so that really helped us the success of the met bar really helps then across the road into mayfair you got momo and you know that was another so kind of all these bars open around the same time and i just think um they captured uh, what people wanted. A bit like how kind of craft beer has happened. You know, it wasn't just one person doing it, it's a few people doing a similar thing at the same time. Similarly with craft gin, maybe there was a couple of leaders on that and there's been a lot of bandwagon businesses since, but um, uh, so it's just good timing really and you need that, you need that in business, a bit of good luck. Definitely. So how long were you running uh, the bars whilst also keeping your sort of uh, legal well, job? I, and did the bosses know? I or? wasn't running them, I'd never, I've never really been like a hands-on operator because I'm, you know, I mean, I've jumped behind the bar a couple of times and I just get in the way. Um, I still don't know how to make a coffee using a coffee machine, a proper coffee machine. Um, I just, you know, hopefully what I try to do is find good people and generally leave them to it uh, or make sure we're on the same page about lots of things first and generally just leave them to it. Although I don't, I'm not sure many people who've worked for me would say I just leave them to it. (laughs) Uh, and I would, I'd love to not interfere or get involved at all. Let's just sit down and agree this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And then I'll leave it to you because I trust you kind of vibe. I mean, that's the theory. It doesn't yeah. work I'm out. I'm smiling right. because I opened a restaurant three weeks ago, yeah. a, another one in, in Bournemouth, and I'm trying exactly that as well. I'm trying, and I keep saying to the manager, you know, I don't want to be a pain in the arse, and I really don't, you know, I'm not trying to step on your toes, toes here because you want to leave them to it. But yeah. then also you've got a load of experience and, and, and knowledge that you, you know, can't help but share. So it's a challenge to watch that, I think, isn't yeah. it? So what, I, what I've said a few times about... Um, opening a bar business and I suppose it counts for a restaurant any hospitality business is the two most important things about your bar your restaurant your venue is uh, the people who work there and the people who go there and you've got to do everything you can to attract the best people possible so from your concept in terms of what your offer is and what you, who you're marketing to and who you want to come in the door you know you want the, you want good people I'm not saying you want cool people or hipsters or rich or whatever you just want good people not dickheads and you want to be working with people like that who are just good people who have got that hospitality gene in them who like looking after people who don't mind being on the feet all day who can deal with dickheads when they turn up and are just you know reliable and are fun and you know and care about quality and consistency and atmosphere and all of those Mm. key things and so I think um, that's kind of what I try to do come up with an idea for a venue that's interesting and exciting, that's going to attract people who want that uh, as their evening or who want to work in that environment as their job. Mm. You know, that's kind of what... I'm smiling again because I very recently was chatting to the HO trying to get a licence for for a town centre location, which I didn't anticipate was going to be a problem at all, but then turned out it was. And I remember sitting down with the licensing kind of guys and going, look, I don't want to attract dickheads. I think that was my exact words. And I said, I I tell you how I will attract dickheads is that I'll serve pints of Fosters in plastic glasses and I'll have a security guard stood down at the bottom with a big bloody yellow jacket on and one of those patches on his arm. I said, and then I guarantee you any dickhead that's walking past is going to go, that's the bar for me. And I said, let me actually sell proper bottles of wine, used glassware, decent beer, no security on the door. And it's, it's, I said, 
you know, I'm not guaranteeing you won't get problems, but you know, the peer group that you start to attract, people look after people, it becomes self-managing. You get the right people in the establishment and they look after themselves. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we deliberately, once we'd opened our first bar and learned a bit, well, even at the opening of our first bar, I decided that we defined ourselves more at the time by what we didn't sell as by what we did sell. So we didn't sell pints at the time. At the time, that kind of binge drinking lad culture was a big problem. And like, sounds like it still might be in Bournemouth if you're yeah, not you're careful. Yeah, you still got a few second hand parties <laughs> kicking around. Yeah. And so we didn't sell that. We didn't sell any energy drinks. You know, that was another thing that was massively popular at the time. We just thought, we'd, you know, we're not those supercharged dickheads. Um, uh, we didn't really do uh, straight shots. To, well, we didn't do things like Jägermeister or that kind of shot sambuca i mean we did a bit of that but and uh, that was really important to me and we really we really wanted to make sure uh, that women uh, enjoyed the environment because again you've got to think it was a very male dominated lad culture at the time i mean all bar one was changing that you know and with their big open windows and that they're, they're one of their big selling points is that we've got these big open windows so you can see in the venue rather than these kind of like frosted window pubs that you don't know what you're venturing into you know you might get attacked by a dog or anything you know so it, that we were it was really important to us that we did that and we um you know we they're a big part i think of the success of modern cocktail culture in this and you see that uh even more so these days i think yeah okay so continuing your journey you end up opening a few i understand is that right yeah well the first one was so successful that we decided to open a second one in the west end i think i can't remember how that decision came about i think probably a saw a signboard outside the venue and thought that might make a good bar. Got inside, there's a bit of brick we could get at. There was a, some cast iron columns that would look good. Uh, you know, I can usually walk in a space and imagine exactly where the bar is gonna be. That's the first thing I wanna think about and then how the vibe might work. Um, and so we, we signed on a site uh, just north of Oxford Circus, which is about, was just opened, I think yesterday or the day before, was the new meat liquor. Mm-hmm. They've moved from their original bricks and mortar site in the old car park that's been knocked down to my second bar site which is really great for them they've got a 3m license i think they'll absolutely kill it there so good luck to them on that um and yeah so we opened what was called match bar there second one and in my own in my mind i was about what my strategy was to try and create the next generation of bar brand that was cooler more music led uh focused on quality cocktails and atmosphere and fun than say all bar one picture and piano and slug and lettuce so i wanted to be the the next generation of that so i thought we'd get five sites in three years or five sites in four years and then we'd see where we get to uh, and when we opened the second site it was just an absolute killer it took off like i had no idea and i thought i had a great little business in ec1 you know doing fifteen thousand pounds a week or whatever it was at the time thinking, wow, this is pretty good. And, you know, all this cash is rolling in. But it was nothing compared to when you're opening the West End because in East London at the time, there just wasn't really that scene. There was a bit of a scene starting to happen in Shoreditch. I can't think of anything that was really open apart from home and some of the older original bars like Charlie Wright's and Blue Note. Um, long before Shoreditch became what it is now. And uh, when Match Bar took off, I mean, it was doing like, Two and a half million a year, three million a year. Some, you know, it was killing it. And was that any food? Or? Yeah, but about ten percent of wow. food sales. I mean, we had a Amazing. big kitchen and a busy kitchen, but we we're selling so many drinks and so many um, cocktails, especially at the time. This was, I think, October '99. Yeah. So I was still working as a lawyer then, um, and I was—I just left my original English law firm, and I was working for an American 
firm. They just kind of piled into London. They were offering big dollars to young English lawyers. And so um, I was working for an American law firm. And I remember standing at one point on a giant I-beam we'd had to put in the floor for the structure of the space. My mobile phone ringing, and it was the managing partner, Nick, on the phone to me saying, JD, where the fuck are you? And I was like, uh, I'm, in, I'm in the West End. Why? I said, you're supposed to be at a meeting now with me at Chase Manhattan. Yeah. <laughs> and I was standing there in my suit, you know, just seeing, overseeing the works. And I thought, I went in the next day and resigned. I said, look, okay. they knew I was opening these bars. I wasn't doing yeah. this secretly, but and I was there at lunchtime. Yeah. And I just ran over a bit late. And I went in the next day I said, listen, sorry, I'm, I don't want to be taking the piss because I really like the guys I was working with. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll resign and I'll, uh, you know, leave you guys to it. And I because con- I concentrate on these bars now. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so you uh, you have a, a loose plan. You're going to be you know open a mm. open a chain of bars, and from again my understanding is a, a trip to New York and a cocktail safari kind of you know skewed the direction. Is that fair? That's that's true because straight after Match Bar we opened So Show in the following June. So I think we'd opened three big busy bars by then in like 20 months, 22 months, something like that. Which going somewhere. I don't think I could do that now. Yeah, how old knackered. were you then? <laughs> how old was I? 26, 27, okay. 28? Yeah, yeah. Plenty of energy then. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I remember in 2000, so that's, sorry, June 2000. Was it the year after? I can't remember. Anyway, we went, I went to Ibiza for six weeks. Right. Rented a villa. I remember my business partner, Rick, who, who we st- I still work with. I think we were both in the pool one day and I just heard that the player in Soho had gone into uh, receivership. And it was on the market and we could pick it up for like 150 grand or something. We're in the pool with Rick. I said, look, I know we're supposed to be opening match bars only, but this bar's a great space. It's got a late license. It's a basement place. And so we could probably spend another 50 grand night and have a great bar opening. And we decided then that we'd open it. Uh, so that we'd buy it. And we, reop- we, we spent a week refurbishing it and reopening it. And it was a great space and really loved having that bar. But it did distract us uh, from uh, the match bar rollout. But what really, a little bit, but what really distracted us was I was writing for Esquire magazine at the time. On, I did just have a page every month on drinks and bars and stuff like that. Uh, and I write about cocktails or beer or wine or whatever it was. And I'd get to go on a few press trips and things like that. And one of them was to New York to go on a cocktail safari with Dale DeGroff, who's like kind of like the Elvis Presley of bartenders, if you're an American. Just an absolute genius uh, and uh, brilliant bloke to work with. But I met him that night, um, took me on a cocktail safari with about 10 other people. We went to seven bars, had two cocktails in each bar. And then he said, at the end of the night, it was just me and him still going. It's like about 1 a.m., 2 a.m. He said, listen, there's this new place open downtown. You're not allowed to write about it, though. The owner doesn't want any publicity. He said, but I'd love to tell you because it's something special and you won't be anywhere like it. And we went in the car uh, down to Milk and Honey on Eldridge Street, wandered in about 2 a.m. We were the only two people in the place. Uh, it was probably a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. One bartender, Sasha, standing behind the bar. Um, in his sort of Savile Row silhouette suit. And we sat at the bar and I just thought, this place is absolutely amazing. I've never been anywhere like it. Just the whole vibe, the lighting, the music, Sasha, being there with Dale. I mean, I had 14, I had 14, 14 drinks. Out, but, <laughs> my health. And, I, and I just thought, God, this is awesome. And I'd, had, I'd just taken over a site in Soho from through the friend of a friend. That, and I didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't really a match bar venue. And I thought, what the this four-storey high space in Soho with a 3M license that used to be a lap dancing club, used to be a live music venue. It's got. He had a near sex license, whatever that is. I think that means full nudity. That at the time we ended up giving that up immediately. Um, 
didn't know what to do with it. And then I walked in this bar, thought, this is the perfect, if we could do this over three or four floors, then that's completely sort of intimate, cosy, you know, I hate to use the word speakeasy atmosphere, was perfect for that Soho site. And I remember saying to Sasha that night after 14 cocktails um, and a, a whiskey he'd given me that, um, have you ever thought about opening one of these in London? He'd only been open a few months. And he said, I've never been to London. I'd love to go to London. I'd love to open a bar in London. It's like, well, Happy why days. don't we? And almost, you know, less than a year later, we'd opened in London. And he'd moved out here and he, he was brilliant to work with and uh, the most kind of... Uh, inspiring person yeah I mean absolutely awesome so um, and we opened Milk and Honey in God when was that April 2002 and that was just an immediate massive success and he more than anybody Sasha more than anybody has changed cocktail culture in the UK and worldwide I think in the last sort of 15 years yeah the biggest influence definitely but you've managed to keep that one uh, relevant and cool and successful. Yeah. And, and, you know, I never hear in, in, the, in the bar trade, you know, it's got such a huge amount of respect yeah. for such a long period of time, which is unusual because generally places come and go. Yeah. What's the secret there? How yeah. has it sustained itself? I think hotel bars have that longevity, yeah, don't they? they? They sustain and they, they've just, um, I think it's stewardship, you know. I mean, you look at a, hotel, a bar like the American Bar at the Savoy, I mean, you know, head bartenders are there for decades or, you know, a long time, and then they, they hand on the baton to someone, you know, who's who wants to do that too. And I've just been really fortunate at Milk and Honey that, well, for starters, working with Sasha, he, he would come here three or four times a year, update the playlist, you know, say, look, that's deteriorated a bit. We need to get back to that style, standard of doing it. I mean, the whole, the, the intensity and the sort of like the, his obsession with making the best and the freshest and the, you know, and at the right temperature drink was just, you know, sort of borderline a bit bonkers, but actually really brilliant, you know. And, and he was so focused on the guest experience and just delivering the absolute best he could every time. Um, and he'd come back and make sure the set, the um, the standards were maintained, and he just inspired like dozens of brilliant bartenders already brilliant bartenders to be better I suppose a bit like you know the manager of a football team can bring out the best you hear about Pep Guardiola Jurgen Klopp taking good great players and making them you know world class I mean I think Sasha did a bit of that for some of them, some absolutely brilliant bartenders who've been match bar bartenders and then wanted to work at Milk and Honey because they saw that as a step up into a different level of kind of technique and attention to detail and uh, and then they became you know they became head bartender they became GM and you know the you know Milk and Honey's just fine I never have to go there you know I literally never have to go there and it it just looks after itself because of you know a brilliant succession of bartenders mm, that have worked there. in now presumably yeah. so it's just hand hand over the baton so, yeah yeah nice. Um, you mentioned earlier about that ability to walk into a space and kind of, you know, see the bar and feel it and presume I think that's an, an energy and a vibe thing and, yeah. uh, and, I, and I share that a lot of the time, I think, and it feels like a bit of a curse sometimes because I've, I've opened a couple of places where you had no intention of doing anything, including the restaurant that I've just opened, but somebody showed me the space and you feel it. Is that something that you just had kind of built into your DNA? Do you think that's where the calling things comes from? You hadn't had any kind of architectural experience or did you also work with some really good designers that helped you? Um... No, I don't, I don't know actually. I just it's just something I've got a feel for, and, and uh, you know you can often walk into someone else's venue and think, oh, they've got that wrong, and they should have done that. Why have they done that? You know, the, you know they don't need those there, and um, 
and I think, I mean, we've tended not to work with, I've tended not to work with designers, work with a couple over the years, and including a really close friend of mine, a guy called Mango, worked with me and Sasha on Milk Honey. And what we've never done is design anything in a studio. Right. So I, um, everything has been designed on on site, in situ. You stand in the space and think, right, where would you put this? Where would you put that? And I, I think that's made the big difference for us. Mm. And a lot, a lot of the time it's made up as you go along. Um, you know, uh, even right, you know, even these days. I was going to say, well, just, we'll, we'll, we'll come into street streets because yeah. those are, yeah. are they, I, they, they blow my mind. But it's, it, it's uh, actually quite difficult when you're working with sites where the landlord wants to see what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, the developer yeah. wants to know what you're going to put in. Say, well, I don't know yet. Yeah. You know, you've not it. built the thing yet. I need to get in and stand in the space. In fact, I'm standing in a space tomorrow that the landlord wants me to make an offer on in the West End. And I think, you know, until we stand in there, I can't deliver a scheme or a plan. Or And even if we do, I bet you we only do it half of it that way and we'll change yeah. our minds. Amazing. No, I, yeah. I've, not, I've never spoken to somebody about that, but I think it's, it's fascinating. I, I always say the same. We've never rolled out a, a concept with what we do. For me, every design is specific to the venue. And I've worked with designers, but I always think unless you know you can stand in a space and I've had people sort of sketch out stuff and say oh could you come and look at this building and stuff like that and it's exactly that I think you just need to stand in it and see how it feels and so yeah. much of hospitality is a feeling it's not yeah. you can get good drinks in loads of places you can get yeah. good food but it doesn't always feel amazing which is a bit of a, a, a segue into uh, into street feast because obviously you, you could have stuck with bars you were bloody good at them you had this amazing reputation they were successful yeah what was the calling to get into Street Feast? Because it's, 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 I mean, it's obviously in the same sector, but it, they feel very different. So what, what was the trigger? Uh, that was a bit of accident and design. Again, I think around 2011, there was the beginnings of like a street food scene in East London. And I really, you know, latched onto it and loved what was going on with Young Bun and Lucky Chip and Pit Q and these brands. And just thought, these are great. This is exceptional food served quickly and cheaply in a, you know, in these kind of mobile kitchen environments and and the people behind them, you know, Lisa at Yonbun, Ben at Lucky Chip and, and, and the guys at Picky, I just thought they were brilliant individuals who were just trying to do something that nobody had done before or do something in this new way. And, you know, running a group of bars at the time, we would often struggle to get someone into our kitchens to do anything. And right? so my business thought was, you know, make I can help these guys get inside if they want to do that and they can help me with, deal with my food problem because you know 80% 90% of what we sell is drinks and the kitchen is often just a headache yeah um, and so I was immediately interested in that Twitter was just starting to happen at the time and uh, I wanted to help these uh, these sort of fledgling businesses uh, market themselves and become something so we created this these kind of like events where we we'd bring people down and I'd provide a load of cheap beer or a load of free drinks or a load of uh, we used to do milk and only three pound for a pint of mojito on the south bank at PitQ and all the money raised went to buy a new smoker and stuff like that. And it was just like a really exciting event. We had some live bands there and like a thousand people turned up. I think the first one I did was at Lucky Chip in um, uh, near Broadway Market and we did it on a Sunday and thank God it was sunny because I'd been tweeting that I'd got this, I literally bought a bathtub, uh, filled it with ice, rosé wine and red striped beer. Said anyone buying a burger from Lucky Chip free beer and free wine and you know at the time you could do a couple of tweets like that and you'd you know and 500 people turned up and it was a massive success and I just thought well this is a really powerful medium for getting the word out um, but it's only getting the word out to people who want something cheap or for free so the next stage of that was seeing if I could use that 
uh, that digital medium to sell tickets to an event. So we came up with these ideas of these food fights. And the first one we did was a chili standoff. We got 10 chefs, restaurants, to create their best version of a, you know, a chili. And then you bought a ticket for 20 quid or 30 quid, I can't remember, and you got to try 10 chilies and you vote for the winner and they get a trophy and they win 2,000 quid. And that led to Taco Wars and Gin Stock and uh, Rum Stock and a few other events that, that follow the, these kind of under the food fight umbrella. And that was a really great success. It, it sold sold out in, you know, we did rib stock, which sold out in four minutes, I think. Amazing. You, you know, make like it sound seven, so easy. You just, yeah, yeah, send out a tweet, do some free booze. Yeah, well, and, I think, uh, but it's, uh, it's well, you have to come up with a good name and a good bit of branding and then get some great names involved. And at the time, again, it was another bit of a zeitgeist. You know, there was a new food happening in this, certainly in this part of London, East London. And that's where I met people like Richard Turner and Stevie Paul and Gizzy Erskine and Carl Clark and all these guys and Jockey from the Fat Duck. And there was so many people that kind of met at these events and I met and you just, you're all thinking, this is great. We want to get into Korean food and we want to find out about, you know, whatever, you know, the next thing is or whatever we've not experienced before. And uh, it was a really exciting time to be doing stuff like that. And uh, I remember um, one summer uh, working with a guy called Adam Layton, who's Noshable Adam on Twitter, and now uh, running the marketing side at Honest Burgers. We did, I think we did six events over seven weekends in Haggerston at the Street Feast site. We did like a barnyard party with Gizzy. We did a back yard barbecue and you know and keg party we did uh gin stock we did taco wars we did every we did six we did rib stock we did six events in seven weekends i don't know how from my kitchen table we didn't have an office then and you know we were just sat there said what can we do you know we did some some ideas for some food events what should we do we just came up with these ideas work with a graphic designer ring around some chefs start the word and you know set the you know set the ball rolling and and they just happened and they were really everyone joined in you know you've got people like James Lowe from Lyles coming and t- competing at you know or, or join you know and these great chefs at the time who've now got fantastic restaurants I remember the guys from um, Clove Club uh, Johnny and Dan the two front of house guys they they won Rumstock which was which we did in 2012 uh, in the car park behind Jamie Oliver's 15 restaurant and they worked with Mike Sager from Sager and Wild and you know at the time and they didn't have the clothes club then, and they didn't have Sager, and Mike didn't have Sagan Wild then, and they just, you know, they met and they ended up winning Runstock, and I think they got two grand or three grand out of it, and it was, they had a great, yeah. that was a brilliant Sunday, That's awesome. and it was just like a really special couple of years, and um, my mate Dom, uh, Kuls Latigue, who is the founder of Street Feast, uh, had uh, started, I think he. He'd started just on Brick Lane and he lasted a couple of weekends there before he got moved along because it was kind of like a food, he called it a nomadic street food circus. So they'd pop up, get the decks out, get the food on, open a bar and off they'd go until they got moved on by the council at the time. And he found a, a, a nice home in Dalston at the, uh, at the Dalston Yard site that became like the big street fish site. And I used to live about 400 yards away. I used to go there with my kids and on, on a Friday and just absolutely love it. Ben Spaulding was cooking there. He was doing brilliant things um, uh, with his stripped back concepts. Um, and I remember thinking, this is brilliant. I think the bar could be better. Don't really like the DJ that much, but Dom's vision is fucking exceptional and he's really onto something and I just loved it. I just used to go all the time just as a customer. And um, I remember at the end of that sort of summer, he'd just done about nine weekends and I probably went to seven of them and I'd eaten at Strip Back every night I'd been there. 
um, he, he then didn't know what was going to do next. And I think he then found a site um, uh, which became Merchant Yard in Haggerston, but he didn't have enough money to get it going. And he said, look, do you want to get involved? Um, it's going to cost about 25 grand, I reckon, maybe a bit more. It did cost a bit more. Um, and I thought, yes, yeah, so, I really want to get involved in making the bars better if we can. And I've got an idea for this space up there I want to turn into a gin store. And I think we should be selling more of these. And, I, and I, some of the food could be better. And I know these guys who do tacos that are better than those guys that do tacos. I've got this guy who does pizza who's brilliant. And I just kind of met, you know, all these people. And can we get Lucky Chip in? And can we, you know, and how about we do this? And, you know, it was just a really creative period with him. And, and we opened um, uh, Street Feast Merchant Yard in Haggerston. I think that was kind of May 2013. And I remember realizing we're onto something when Dom came in one Friday evening, I think it's the second Friday or the first Friday we'd opened. And he said, I've just got off the overground where you've got like five carriages. He said it was absolutely packed and the train stopped at Haggerston and literally everyone got off. 5.30, 6 o'clock and they were all coming to Street Feast. Amazing. And there was a Tesco ATM across the road and there was like a line of about 100 people and there's like 400 people queuing around the block to, to come to Merchant Yard. It was just brilliant, yeah. you know. And that was a lot of people coming together to do really cool things. The guy's doing the food, Don with all of his stuff, and you know us doing our bar bits, Ben Spaulding doing his strip back thing, and it was just brilliant, really. Yeah. Uh, and and then, so for those who've not been then to Diamond Rock, because again, like I say, you make it sound easy, and I'm sure being in the city and all of those uh, people who were in the city and, and the proximity of them makes it easier to get these people all under one roof. Um, and I've, I've been to Dinorama and it's, it's an amazing, again, when you talk about how a space feels, it's incredible. Mm. And, how, and how on earth it was uh, designed, I've got no idea because it, it, yeah. it looks like a mishmash of so many different things, but yeah. feels incredible. For people who've, uh, who've not been, can you just paint a picture of what these places are like and why they're so different? It, it's really hard. In fact, when I meet people for the first time and say, what do you do? I say, I run this thing called Street Food. They go, what's that? It goes like street food night markets. And they go... We have, you know, you try and describe it. I really have to just show them a picture. That's usually get it. And they go, wow. Because I've got great pictures of Dinorama, some great pictures of Hawker House. But um, Dinorama, how do I describe it? I mean, we've got, when we took over a 12,000 square foot former car park, which has big iron fencing around it, it was used for bullion trucks. And um, uh, it's right on Great Eastern Street in Shoreditch. It had no power, uh, no water. Um, we had to use a generator and a giant water bottle when we first started there. And we originally intended to open that two nights a week for four months in the spring and summer, and that was going to be it. Was it completely empty when you got it? It was completely empty. There was nothing in there at all. Don found the site. Um, we did the deal. Uh, Henry Dimbleby had joined the business by then and was working with us, and uh, he sorted out the planning, which was a miracle. And we got a license for a thousand capacity venue in Shoreditch, right on the edge of the special policy areas is this kind of like exclusion zone of new licenses. And we couldn't believe it at the time. And thank God we did because it's been a, a brilliant thing for us and I think a brilliant thing for our traders and a lot of the small businesses that we work there. We've created so many jobs for young local Londoners and it's just been, you know, an all round success. And um, I can't remember where we got the idea for this kind of like mezzanine structure from, but um, we originally intended uh, just to have like two bars and sort of like eight, six street food kitchens, then we'd have some trucks parked outside. We very quickly found out that it's just too hard to deliver the volume and guarantee the consistency unless you've got a proper kitchen. And so I think we've now got 10 kitchens in there. We, we you know, proper extracts, you know, um, 
uh, you know, decent counters. We give these guys a really decent shell kitchen, you know, sinks, you know, for all the health and safety, hand wash, and everything else that wasn't there in the early days. So, and then we just kind of built this kind of like Meccano mezzanine iron structure around it, and we, we put four bars upstairs, um, uh, which be, which we kind of intended would be like uh, rooftop space. So we've got this downstairs semi-covered eating and a little bit of drinking space and then upstairs is kind of like this big roof area that you go to but it was so successful throughout the summer that we thought we've got to carry this on throughout the winter so we kind of winterized it with some makeshift roofs and then the next season a bit better roofs and we just kind of grew it like that organically okay. really so there's i'd say 70 percent set out to design it like that and then 30 percent of it's just Evolved. Okay, it's nice to know it evolved because yeah. when I was looking at it and I went round, then I was the only weirdo going round, sort of you know taking pictures, going, "How yeah. the hell have they done that?" You've got like a, a kind of trestle roof in one bit. You've got yeah. corrugated plastic. You've got mm. big bits of steel. You got it. It, it it's comes back to that design thing. It is, but it's also kind of deliberate because we thought, well, we've done that style over there. Let's do something different over there because that that's how it would have happened. Mm. You know, it's it's a bit like. You see a streetscape and you can see where some buildings are built in the 20s and some buildings are built in the 50s. You know, you just can tell the difference. You don't want it to all look uniform. I don't, I mean, without mentioning names, I don't like going to markets where the owners prescribe the signage. You've got to use this typeface. You know, everyone looks the same. For me, that is visually boring. Yeah. You know, and it, it's kind of, it's, it's too sterile. You know, I, one of the key things for me, and I, and I remember when we opened the first Hawker house in um, Bethnal Green, I think the opening weekend, I remember writing to all the traders and saying, listen, you've all got to have a light box. No one had a light box at the time. Street food is mostly outside, you know, where there's lighting anyway, whether it's daylight or street lighting. And everyone had a chalkboard or a whatever. And I said, look, it's not us. We've got to create something that's a bit more visually appealing and exciting. And everyone needs to be unique and you all need to get a light box. And I was like, fuck, where do we get light boxes from? Everyone's Googling light boxes and buying them off the shelf. Some people were making them. And it made a real difference. And I think that's, I really love that um, that vibrancy and that, yeah. that difference when we, in our venues. Yeah. Um, I think, um, and you can see it in, uh, in some businesses that followed ours, but the ones where they don't have it, I think it's a real shame. A place I love is DeKalb uh, in downtown Brooklyn. If um, and they insisted there that every trader had to have a neon sign. It's a lot more expensive, but it's fantastic when you go down there. Mm. The, it just, you know, it just shimmers at you, and it's you yeah. know much more exciting. You feel like you know. I suppose it feels a little bit more exciting when you go into a place like that. It's yeah. not just somewhere to eat food. Yeah, and it, and it's actually refreshing to know that it's not overly designed and I think if you did overly design it it wouldn't feel the same it's got an authenticity that you wouldn't yeah. get if that had been CAD drawn by an architect basically it, it feels like it's evolved and exactly. it's nice to know that it did but also on the bar side you know I worked with some great guys here and I said look we needed to, let's do a gin bar in fact that wasn't even my idea that was uh, I think that was Nicola who came in and said we need a gin bar so alright uh, we've got an old kitchen from the 50s let's do a gin kitchen and um, you know, like a formicary uh, sort of yellow, I think it was yellow, it might have been sky blue, I can't remember. And then, and that just, then someone finds some wallpaper and then someone finds, you know, some furniture. And I didn't have anything to do with it. I just, they just create this brilliant gin kitchen. Mm. And uh, same with uh, German Sex Dungeon, that's our craft can and shots bar. Just said to the bartenders, it's your space. Like you're a trader, you do what you want with it. And what they created was this completely unique look 
which ended up being a bit tatty and not really sustainable, but it still feels real. You know, it's not. Am I right in saying that that was about six and a half grand and you made it back in a week? Or yeah, two I weeks. I hated you when I read that. Yeah, two <laughs> weeks. Yeah, <laughs> somebody who spent you know half a million quid. Actually, once ten on days. We just... we made back our investment on that buy in ten days. Amazing. Yeah, it is. And, and again, yeah, it just it just feels right, and and. It, I, you know, I like the fact that I keep saying you make it sound easy because things like that can end up looking a bit shit or feeling a bit shit. Yeah. But it doesn't. It just, uh, it's just really eclectic and it works. And I guess, yeah, being a big empty space in London works. But you have managed to replicate. I've not been to the others, although I've looked at a few photos and I want to. I keep meaning to come up and just literally yeah. spend a day going around your venues, and I will at some point. And my poor bloody landscaper, because we've just built this this big terrace, and he keeps trying to over-design it. And I keep showing him pictures of your place and of steel and corrugated bits of plastic and stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. go, look, we don't need to yeah. make this overly designed. But how many have you now got? And have they all got a similar kind of vibe to Dynorama? Or no, they all well, they're, all, they're all different. I mean, it would be a lot easier if they're all similar, but they're all completely different. And it, you know, we design them... You know, it, how we design them depends on depends on the space we get. You know, um, if we've got outside space, if it's facing the sun, you know, if we, you know, where we are. You know, we've got four sites now in east and southeast London, and um, some of them are on sort of like one year to go leases, which will probably get renewed. We've got ten years in Canary Wharf, where we went with a more conventional space, um, and we thought we'd try and sort of uh, adapt our. Uh, offer to you know, more conventional space because we really struggle to find sites really struggle to find empty space in London that we can have for five years or ten years yeah. whether it be a warehouse or a car park and it was a lot easier a few years ago and uh, with all the sort of planning and licensing hassle that's you know uh, becoming a real problem for us uh, we, it's just becoming difficult so we wanted to go in, we wanted to, we started to think about going into more conventional like let's take the ground floor of an office building or, you know, which has got double height, you know, reception area and let's see if we can do something like that. That's, that's kind of why I went to Canary Wharf. And has it got a similar vibe? It works, presumably? Oh, yeah. We've got four kitchens. Giant Robot in Canary Wharf got four street food kitchens and uh, three bars. Three right. bars there. So it's kind of like a... It's the same size as Dynorama on the ground floor, but it's just kind of a miniature version of that. Well, we've got, Dynorama's got 10 kitchens, 10 bars. Okay. And then from the the other sort of way that I sort of, you know, hate, hate you and then admire you is you seem to find these spaces get phenomenal rents and fit them out at what yeah. seem to feel like inconceivably yeah. low kind of budgets and stuff. Yeah. How, how the hell do you well, do that? Well, again, I was, I was talking earlier about how we design places and change our minds as we go along and make it up. And one of the reasons we're able to do that is we work with a really good build team, right. really good friend of mine, Terry, who um, I actually first met in 96 when he was painting and decorating the flat that I just bought, having come back from Abu Dhabi. And he's been my mate since then. And he's like our build boss. He's part of our senior team. And he's got some great guys working with him. And he, he, you know, he stands there and helps us work things out. And and uh, is incredibly patient and understanding when we change. Yeah. When you keep coming up with a new idea. Yeah, we barely build something and say, I think that's, I don't Looks think that's right, shit. let's change yeah. it. And uh, it's just, you know, we're not paying consultants and people uh, to tell us and to suggest and to draw and to do stuff that we don't end up using. So it's a, it's a very cost efficient way of building, I think. Um, we can build really quickly and, and relatively cheaply. And I think in terms of the rents we get on some of our sites, it's because we're making use of space that isn't being used. I mean, Hawker House, for instance, you know, that site was empty when we, for a couple of years when we took it over. The landlord is paying rates on that site and is paying um, security costs to stop it from being squatted. 
we save them that. He's also about to develop a load of flats and offices around there, so he wants some place making. We, you know, we've helped put Canada Water on the map along with Secret Cinema that were there about the same time, along with Printworks, this is there now. You know, it's kind of no longer this strange place. Still, still a lot of people think Canada Water's in Canary Wharf, but actually a lot of people now know where it is, and it's actually some cool things have been happening there. And you know, I think there's 70 acres of land to be developed there. They're gonna build a whole new town, effectively. It's gonna take 10 years, but that's the same size as kind of like the whole of behind King's Cross. You see how long that's taken, and I think that's gonna happen in Canada Water with, uh, and we're just at the sort of the, the, the forefront of that really in terms of bringing people to the area. Yeah. And when you say it's got harder to do that and to pull that off, is it because people now know what you do? Is it the fact that when you started, it was, it, you know, any car, just going to take this car park and people are like, well, anything's going to be better than an empty car park. And why has it become more challenging? I think, well, the main reason is we, we've become a lot pickier. Right. So there was a time when we just open anywhere and even for six weeks or 12 weeks. Now, you know, we're a big business now. We've got 300 shareholders crowdfunded and um you know we've we've got a strategy and we're not doing sites that we can't have for at least five years ideally we will accept maybe a three-year break but if we break it three years we want some of our investment back uh it really depends on the opportunity so um you know we're not just taking us we could have gone back to dalston yard for another year but we just we weren't prepared to deal with the landlord there on this kind of like can we can't we basis it's just too much of a distraction. We've got to be a little bit more serious, structured and organised than that. We've got to be in central London. We've got to be, the, the business is at a size now we want to be in central London. So, okay. but I don't want to be in, um, equally I don't want to be in a site, I don't want to mention any names because it starts to become critical. I don't want to be in a site that's going to cost me four million pounds to open. I don't want to be in a site that's going to cost me eight million pounds to open. You know, Dynarama cost 600,000 to open, you know, and yeah. uh, you know, it made twice that in its first year. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't want to be in sites like that. So we're, as I say, I think the main reason is we've become more picky, but when we find the right site, it will be a really good one for us. Yeah, okay. So, talking a little bit about some of the annoyances of the industry, I suppose, and we, we touched on this earlier with, uh, you know, kind of sound systems abroad and stuff like that. And I mentioned skiing. Are we still backwards? Are we still over-regulated in this country with the nighttime economy? Oh yeah, I think, I mean, it's probably not a good idea to get onto this. But, um, <laughs> you can have a rant, go on. <laughs> uh, I mean, I absolutely despair of what's happening at the moment in the nighttime economy. Hackney is the most vibrant borough in London with the most draconian licensing policy now. And uh, it's just come out of nowhere. There's no need for it. Um, it's a kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction by some badly informed uh, ill-intended people and I, I, it's, it's a real problem for us now we we can no longer open if the, the existing licensing policy which I, came, I think came in uh, was it January this year February this year um, uh, and existed in 2015 Dynarama wouldn't exist Box Park wouldn't exist you know uh, none of these places would be open and that is that would be a massive shame so what we're not seeing is the next Dynarama or the new box park or whatever it is opening in Hackney at the moment. Um, there's no outside anything after 10 o'clock across the whole borough, unless there are exceptional circumstances or you can prove, you know, this, that and the other, which is very difficult. Um, you can't get a license. Uh, the core hours in the borough now are till 11 o'clock, I think Sunday to Thursday, and then it's midnight Friday to Saturday. You've got really got to push. You've got to have a lot of money and the right lawyers to get beyond that. So you've got no young independents 
coming in and doing something cool and knocking the established businesses off their perches, you know. And so what you're finding is that the big corporate businesses will be the only ones so who will then get into Shoreditch. So I think Shoreditch is going to become, it's already stagnated. I mean, there's no new bars opening in Shoreditch. There's no new life in Shoreditch. There's some rebanded sites and some relaunch sites, which, which is always good. But, you know, it's... It's a real problem for us. Mm. So, and, and, what, and what's because it, it's so frustrating when it's so good for the town, for the area, for the residents. People enjoy yeah. it. It's good for you know the city's reputation globally. The vibe. What's the motivation? Is it is it is it a small number uh, of nimbies who just don't want the noise? It's or? it's a small number of old people, were council officials and council uh, councillors, di- deciding and dictating how young people should behave and live their lives, and they're basing it on. A, 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 a generation that is nothing like the existing one. The existing generation of under 35s is fantastic to look after. They aren't big drinkers. They aren't. They don't go around fighting. They don't cause problem. They are a really lovely audience to look after. And they're just not these, these kind of like anti-social behavior problems that there were when I was their age. It just doesn't exist. You know, I think we've had two million visitors nearly at Dynorama. We've not had a single incident in the premises which required the police attendance. That's incredible. Not one. That's amazing. You know, yeah. it's just ridiculous that, you know, and I, and I think a lots of business, and, you know, on some sunny Saturday nights, Shoreditch on the streets can feel a little bit like Magaluf in terms of the number of bodies out there, but they're, they're a nice group. And if you, and the problem is that will deteriorate, that audience will deteriorate, it'll become more bridge and tunnel, so less local, the more local you are, the more likely you are to look after your local area. If everyone's coming in from outside because, you know, they're being marketed to by these big corporate venues, then the area's going to deteriorate. And I, I'm surprised that kind of like developers, landlords, cool uh, tech companies around here aren't doing more to hassle the council. People want to work in this area because they can go out in this area. There's a nice pub, there's a great coffee shop, there's a great, you know, restaurant that you can... You can order at midnight till and so on and so forth. I, the, the recent one I heard about on uh, Shoreditch High Street was there's a bookshop that wanted to have a liquor license to serve, I think it was just wine, only with food until 10 o'clock uh, to go alongside this kind of like poetry readings. So to do poetry readings in the evening where you can have a, you know, a piece of quiche or a, whatever it is and a glass of red wine and they were going to stop at 10 o'clock and their licence was refused because they're inside Jeez. the Shoreditch Special yeah, Policy yeah. Area, which is just insane. And that's a licensing panel that's just kind of following the guidelines. Their hands are tied to a large extent mm. or they, didn't, they weren't brave enough to say, this is going to be fine. This is exactly the kind of thing we should be encouraging. You know, that's, rather that's than preventing. The, yeah, that's the frustration when it's exactly what you should be doing yeah. to, to create the uh, create the space. We do a, uh, a salsa night down on the seafront on the beach and we spill off of our terrace onto the promenade. There's no way I'd ever get permission to say, look, we're just going to put out, it's a bit like, again, you put it out on Twitter or whatever, and uh, there's a, a, a salsa club that come down from London and we might have a couple of people on the promenade all dancing. We have a DJ down there blasting music out. Yeah. There's no way you'd ever get permission to do it. You know, right. And we just have to do it sort of in a pop-up style. And everybody who comes down loves it. You know, the people in this, there's flats nearby. Yeah. But the whole vibe and the energy, and it's a tourism town, and it's exactly what should be going on in a tourism town. You should just go for a walk on the beach, not even know this is happening, just come across it and go, holy shit, what an incredible atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, but you know at some point, 
you know, one person will complain and the council guaranteed will come and, and shut it down and say, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of asking for uh, yeah, forgiveness, not permission. I'll probably yeah. regret this because they'll uh, they'll hear it. But uh, it's so important for placemaking, for, to make places feel yeah. relevant. And, to, and I know the number of people who come down there, they see those nights, they sit on the balcony overlooking the ocean and they might live in London and they think, sorry, I'm going to move down here. This is a, yeah. this is a, a, a cool kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, so it's disappointing. How do we how do we fix that? Can we? Will, will democracy ultimately sort uh, it out and the, and the old guys will leave and the new guys will come in and change it? Or are you more depressed than that? I, I really feel depressed about it. I think the next three sites will open will probably be out of London. Really? It's so difficult to do anything here. I mean, it's been difficult in Westminster and Covent Garden for you know 15 years and now that's happening in Shoreditch. And in fact, not just Shoreditch, the whole of Hackney. Um, I think we'll really struggle. I mean, it's been quite straightforward to open in the city. Corporation of London is a m- much more uh, open to um, licensing um, to you know make it a more uh, livable place to work or more exciting place to work. Um, but we, we you know maybe should, we might be all right in Camden, some areas of Camden should be all right in some areas of Lambeth, Brixton, round there. But you know, I want to be in the West End. I want to be in Hackney, our home borough. We love it here. Mm. You know, I first moved to Hackney in '92. All my four kids all. Went to school here and grew up here. You know, it's it's our it's where street feast started pretty much. We should be able to open. Yeah. You know, we should be able to open the world's greatest night market in Hackney that becomes world famous. Someone should be able to do that. Yeah. With the existing licensing environment here, that is never going to happen. Yeah, which is such a shame, especially if you've got a reputation for two million visitors and never had any trouble. You're like, you know, yeah. where do you want to go? Well, like you well, say time you're out like, market. I mean, that was in Tower Hamlets. Time out market got refused. You know, it's, on that site on Commercial Road. Yeah, it's so. Uh, so, so they've gone to Waterloo. Really? You know, I don't know if they're going to come here as well and maybe do two sites in London, but they got refused planning in Tower Hamlets. Um, uh, yes, yeah, over over regulation. Well, look, before you explode, uh, there's a couple of other quick things I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, in the actual businesses, so how do you select your because the bars you generally run yourself, is that right? And then the food you get other people in to do. Yeah, we run the bars and then the food. Guys run all themselves, yeah. We, Which we've is invested also a stroke in, of genius. We, yeah, yeah. We've invested in a couple of traders to help them grow and open more sites. And um, you know, we're just a silent shareholder. Leave them to it. Don't interfere in the business. Help them with some social media, some marketing, or design support if they need it. But generally, just we've just become kind of like silent shareholders. Yeah, that's an incredible opportunity for some people. That incubation, and I know a yeah. lot of the people you've worked with have gone on to open restaurants and have great success. Yeah. How do you choose the people that you? allowed to come in there is it is it are you selecting them are they banging on the door in the early days i was pretty much personally responsible for almost everyone and had quite a clear and strong vision about what we wanted and what was going to be next and you know uh you know meeting the guys chris and nudd at bredo's tacos and and biting into my first short of taco thinking my god this is delicious we've got to get these guys involved biting into my first yum bun First Lucky Chip Burger. Um, I'd so, I met uh, Dave Carter from Smokestack. And Smokestack's an absolutely sensational restaurant. I don't know if you've been. I've been but, no, I mean, but, yeah. it is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I met David. He said, listen, I've got this idea for a Texas-style barbecue. I want to ship this smoker over from Houston. Can, you, can I come into Dawson Yard? He was a GM at Rocker in Canary Wharf at the time, so I knew he had hospitality experience. And I just kind of took a punt on, the, you know, I liked the guy. I liked what he was doing. I thought no one else was doing this. He's got a really strong design vision. He's, uh, you know, and I, it was a risk we took and it was a, it was a, you know, it paid off because he was our top trader from straight early days. And he, he worked with us for three or four years before opening his restaurant. And I think all the money he made from street food has gone into that. And, uh, you know, good on him really. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
So in the early days, it was about wandering the streets and trying things and seeing stuff online and hearing about things and going out. I remember Pizza Pilgrims when they started in Soho. I was there the second day for one of their pizzas. I thought, oh my God, this is fucking delicious. Got those guys in uh, for a couple of years working with us. They, they were brilliant. Uh, Bow, you know, uh, trying their first, trying one of their buns is fantastic. They've got, I think, four or five restaurants now. Crazy. They were superb. Who else? Um, God, there was loads of them. Uh, I think they're the main ones. Breados were yeah. great, obviously. I've said I don't that. want to go back to licence, but that's a clear yeah. in- indication of the you know the incubation that you provide in the same way that tech companies provide incubation periods and support. Yeah. You do that. You, you create this environment with these guys because, you know, the statistics of 80% of restaurants failing or whatever, they get to test it in your environment where it's cheap to get into, exactly. make some decent money, and then go on to create restaurants and create jobs and create industry. Yet some, I don't want to go back there, but some it, licensing twat uh, stops you from doing it, yeah. which, is, which is frustrating. So if people want to, uh, if there's anyone listening and they've got some sort of straight, great street food concept what do they do now how do they get to come and sh- to join the party it's, it's easy just jump on our website I think you, you know I should know the answer to all these things but I'll leave <laughs> yeah, it to other people, people. Do it. Yeah. Um, I think well, on our, our website just contact us through our website I think the one thing I'd, sometimes people try and come up with too tricky a concept right. or a silly mashup that's not needed and you know it's actually for instance quite difficult now to get a really good burger on in, in a street food venue because you know, they've all gone on to open their own restaurants. So Bleak are doing that burger and Beyond are doing that, you know. So uh, sometimes you just need to do something simple and just do it really well. You know, um, we've had Fundy Pizza with us for a while and Born and Raised. There's always room for another. We've got Wonder Crust as well. There's always room for another really good pizza. And it's not just about the food. If you're doing street food, it's not just about the food. It's also about your brand and your design and your, you know, your attention and interest in creating a space that we're going to give you a blank three meters by three meters space and you've got to fill it with your you know your offer your brand your your color scheme whatever it is and you've got to be good at that as well and you've got to be brilliant at the food and you've got to be great at making sure your staff are happy and smiley and greet people and you know it is a restaurant business in miniature a lot easier to manage. It's but, so much better than a restaurant business. Why I, yeah, I, yeah. I walked around in awe, going, "Man, this place is you know, you're some sort of genius." Because yeah. it is the hardest bit is the restaurant side, the chef yeah. side, managing the kitchens, and also the, the 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 food fads and the change, and to have that ability to outsource that. And and you know, the best restaurants are owned and managed. You know, it's particularly in the early days when they're in there and they're passionately run, and, and you've got lots of mini versions of that where the owners are actually in there yeah. cooking and they love what they do. Exactly, it's, it, it's a stroke of genius. That's one of the best parts of street food, which is diluted a bit to some extent as things have taken off but meeting the person who owns the business or is the chef and they're cooking it for you right there and they hand it over and as a chef that must be very rewarding to see the people bite into that and go my god that's delicious You know, that is really valuable. Yeah. And some venues just need an owner-operator. I've just sold one of my places, funny enough, to my brother-in-law. And I said, look, it's, it could be a tidy business. I can't make it work. But it just needs the owner to be in there giving a shit about every single person that comes through the door, looking them in the eye. And people buy into that. And we support yeah. the underdog. We love to see grafters yeah. and people having a go. So it's a and great idea. I think the other thing is it's a kind of it's like a group effort. It's a real team of people. Everyone's doing their own little thing, but we're also all in the same space. And so... You've got to be good to work with, you know, fun to work with and not, you know, not difficult, no divas. Yeah, you know? yeah no, perfect, yeah. So, um, and so you end up, yeah, I think you end up with a, with a really great group of people. Yeah, and that comes across, again, through that, that, that energy when you're in the building. But the bars you run yourself, and you don't just, you know, you're not lazy with that, you don't just put a bar in the corner, you've got, no. uh, you know, shop bar and the, the sex dungeon and a gym bar. Yeah. 
you know, where do you come up with these these concepts from, and why do you split it out and, and you know into lots of different spaces? Because well, it's operationally more challenging, presumably. We, it is a little bit, but we started doing that to kind of emulate what our traders were doing. In that, one of the reasons street food is popular is because if you're just doing burgers, right, you're going to do them really well. If you're just doing tacos, you're going to if you're focusing on one thing, pizza, you're going to do it really well. You know, rather than these restaurants that try and do too many things at once. And so we thought we'd do that. Let's let's do a rum bar. And let's get our, the bartenders that work there trained up and passionate. Let's find guys who love rum and want to make the best rum drinks and put them there. You know, let's find the guys who want to be are into gin or whatever and they want to do that. Let's find the guys who are into craft cans and give them a craft can bar with 60 craft beers on. And then maybe we could add some shots on there because they're into tequila and uh, bourbon as well. But And then generally, if, if you're... If you're um, Kind of one of our gigging uh, bartenders. You just want to be on the main bar. And you don't. It's not a highly skilled position, but you know you're you're a good fun person to work with. Then that's a, then there's a person for that job as well. So it was really from that. But um, yeah, I mean we've probably got too many bars at some of our sites. Um, well, the bit that makes me, as an operator, the bit that I'd be worried about would be, you know, staff uh, percentage and trying to think if I've got a, yeah. an individual bar and an individual person in every one. But you, you've, you've, does that become a problem or well, have you just got the demand that it's not an issue? It's not because, well, selling drinks is, you know, high margin, low staff cost compared to food. Yeah, true. And we're not paying, silly, at most of our sites, we're not paying commercial rents. Yeah. So we've got, that has enabled us, that model has enabled us to do more than you would normally commercially risk doing you know in a conventional venue yeah, absolutely so that's right, yeah. why you can spend a bit more money on look and feel you can you can not worry about certain commercial aspects of a of your model that you would do because we've got that yeah you know that leeway that's why again why i wanted to uh to, to speak to you because i thought it is it's a, it's a stroke of genius yeah. uh conscious of time um one of the other things whitley is that you uh, i know one of the, your, your bugbears is this kind of innovation for innovation's sake and you sort of alluded to it then with don't don't over complicate the street yep. food and, and and you've won awards for your bars and and i, I watched the talk you did about the 50 uh, best bars what's your thoughts on this kind of constant innovation and do we over innovate and is it necessary and what's the secret to actually just making a successful well, bar? in in food i think that's not happening a great deal i mean there's a couple of places that open you just know they're not going to last because they're, they're over you know they're doing too many or they're trying to do too many things i think uh, in the bar world in the uk bar scene at the moment there's a real issue with that where you've got uh bartenders opening bars which is i think is a great thing but they're not they're opening bars for themselves and they're not opening bars for the customer and they're kind of competing with each other for, you know, innovation and originality and, and whatever it is that, that, you know, they're interested in. And they've stopped focusing on the customer experience and the atmosphere and, you know, it's become all about the drink or and all about the bartender rather than all about the guest. And um, that that's, I find that really tedious. I mean, I often go into a bar Every single drink on the menu is new, you know, and I'll just have a gin and tonic. Although you, they'll probably fuck that up somehow by <laughs> adding, oh yeah, or and I'll just have a beer. I just think, you know, I'd love to try one of your cocktails, but you know, these are all so weird and different. I mean, there's one cocktail menu I looked at recently that sounded, I think, sounded like the names. I didn't. I mean, every cocktail there's one or more ingredient. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, if you're sticking that, what, what's the point of putting that in front of people? I mean, I, I've been around a few decades 
and I'm, I know my drinks, and I don't know what that ingredient is. And what I, is this just showing off? Am I supposed to ask you and demonstrate my ignorance and your superior knowledge, and you 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 feel good about making me feel, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't understand why that's coming from, and I just think that happened in food. 20 years ago we had these chef led businesses that you know were pit, you know wouldn't put salt on the table you eat it this way i will only cook it that way i don't care what you want that's changed now you've yeah. got you know you've got more mature young chefs but much more grown up than their predecessors who are uh, doing things that people like and that they can feel proud of and yeah. i think you've got to get that balance right mm. and at the moment in the bar scene in london i don't think that balance is right yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And as soon as you said it, you know, the, the, the challenge, like you say, it's great that bar teams or bar people are opening bars, but it, it, it exactly that. I've thought of so many chefs I know that have opened restaurants where it's all about the food. And yeah. it's not all about the food and it's not all about the drink. It it's is not. about it is about both, but it's also about the music and the lighting and the ambience and the yeah. vibe. And yeah, it cannot just be completely self-indulgent. And you're right. I love chefs who've been through that journey and come through the other side yeah. where they go through the bit where it's all about them and it's all about their food and it's all about changing things for the sake of changing it. And I love it when they've come through and gone to, for two reasons one you've got to sell what people want to buy because yeah. it's, it's about money and two you need the food to be really good when you're not there and if it's so self-indulgent that it's all about you and your kind of weird steaks then basically you've got to be there all of the time but yeah. a really good chef needs to know that the place has got to run like clockwork when he goes on holiday for a couple of weeks otherwise he's going to burn out anyway yeah, exactly and you know I, I, I've been at Noma a few times I've not been since they reopened and their seafood menu what they've got now I think last year's seafood menu you were people were eating jellyfish you know, and I thought, why, why? People are eating the ejaculate from a sea cucumber. <laughs> so someone's going around, arousing a sea cucumber or whatever you have to do to it. And I mean, like, and there was seafood in every dessert. And it's like, yeah, you're just being a dick now. Yeah. You know? I'd, 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 yeah, I'd have to be there with you and see you go off on one of your rants. I've seen a few on Twitter, to be fair. So I've enjoyed those. But you're, you're bang on right. So well done for having the balls to say it. So you must get loads of people coming to you for advice now. You, you, you've clearly helped incubate. You've helped connect a number of dots with all the people that you know. Is there either any really shit advice that you see constantly being peddled where you go, that's bollocks, that's academic, you know, that, that, that's not actually going to be the case in the real world? Or is there any bit of advice that you consistently give where you go, whatever you do, do this, otherwise you're not going to succeed? I've not, not, not seen a lot of crap advice. I see a lot of uh, new business owners making, um, you know, like kind of textbook mistakes that you just think, I wish you'd let me have a look at that lease before you signed it, or you should have spoken to a uh, licensing lawyer before you try to open there or you know why don't you just you know put something on Twitter or we've got different WhatsApp group chats but I think the thing about opening your own business is you want to do things your way and do your own thing and that's I understand that so people just crack on and do it and it's, they learn by their own mistakes I see a lot of people who don't register the trademark it doesn't cost a lot of money a few hundred quid just you know and they've got a great name and you think someone's going to nick that or you know get close to it and you need to protect that um, I think uh, I, I, one cynical thing I often say to uh, people that I'm not sure is true nowadays with a newer generation who are a little bit more straightforward and it's that I always, uh, certainly in the bar business, coming from a legal background into working in bars in the late 90s, early 2000, I very quickly worked out that everybody was lying to you about everything all of the time. I just thought it was absolutely bonkers. Like, I know you've just lied to me, and it's kind of like you know you've just lied to me, but we have to pretend that it's not a lie and that your business is great and you're not about, you've not, it's not up for sale and you're, you know, you, 
you've just not had your license reviewed and it, just some insane things that but I, I don't think that's the case now but I think it's worth bearing in mind because you know there will be people that will be lying to you yeah. you know about stuff that is important to your business um, I think I think successful business owners are single minded and so making mistakes that have been made in the past many times by other people is going to be it's going to happen all the time isn't it yeah although it they, seems ridiculous because you don't, you know we're not reinventing the wheel people have been eating and drinking for uh, quite a long time I think I, on planet earth aren't they yeah I mean I think um, I helped the goers at the clove club set up in business I helped you know find that site and negotiate that lease for them I uh, did all the crowdfunding for them and they got I think they raised £250,000 which was a lot of money at the time they did that and they opened their first restaurant on the back and it was that was really good to have. and I'd done quite a few things like that for quite a few businesses and, I, and, and just leave them to it you know just talented people who are good at 80% or 90% of the things you need to be really good at to run a business and if, if they're lacking the 10% often what they're doing is they're going to an accountant or they're going to a lawyer or they're, you know, they're going somewhere and I think um, it's best to go to someone in the industry and just ask them. I know all the law and all the accountancy and all the property and all of this that I need to know to open a restaurant or a bar or whatever you want to do. Just ask somebody like me or, you know, it's not difficult. I think there are very few people I've met in hospitality because it's such a great industry to work in that are protective of their own experience and knowledge. I can think of a couple right now. That just would don't never would yeah. never tell you that would I think a couple that would probably tell you the wrong thing really just because they wow. don't want you to everybody's lying to you <laughs> yeah because they, they don't want you to succeed or they don't want you to open that thing around the corner from okay. where they are yeah you know where I've always been the opposite of that mm. gladly gladly share the knowledge and yeah. you know I think that's why it's such an exciting industry is that you know we we, we do hospitality and we do that because we generally genuinely love people and we like to see human beings having a good time with their friends or their mates or their colleagues or whatever. Uh, it's why I love the sector because you just meet so many good humans this is called the humans of hospitality for that reason yeah. I have the privilege of going around and chatting people like you and there's so many just bloody lovely people which I don't imagine you always get in the in, in the legal uh, world which is why you're probably such a cynical bugger because I've spent yeah. i just spent a, a few hours early this week with my lawyer who, who automatically just has to presume the worst in everybody he just has yeah, to presume do. that everybody's worst trying case. to shaft you whereas I'm a deluded optimist so uh, yeah. I presume it's been useful having that legal background must have helped you out in a lot of what you do because a lot of people end up in hospitality because they couldn't do anything else but you did it yeah and could have yeah no i think it must have been i don't i'm not i don't notice that it does i mean i don't negotiate the line by lines of leases I, we have a property lawyer that does that i don't we have an ip lawyer who registers our trademarks you know i don't really do anything legal in that business anymore but it's i think any professional background coming into hospital i mean one of the reasons i think i've been successful in hospitality is because i come from a very professional background and you know Historically, not the case now, but historically, so it might, the time I started out, it wasn't a very professional business in the bit I was in, bars. You know, it was all about getting pissed and getting drunk and some tequilas after work and that kind of thing. And, you know, your mates can have some freebies. And, I, you know, I, I have tried, I've not always done this, but I've, because I sometimes forget, I've always paid for every drink. You know, sometimes if it goes a bit late and uh, <laughs> somebody doesn't come and ask me to pay my bill, I'll forget and I'll do it tomorrow, or the, you know, but I've always paid for every drink. You know, so, and I think that's really important. I'm not, you know, I'm not in it for the, for the, the, the cheap booze or the, you know, and I, whenever I buy some yumplings or a pizza or, a, or some chicken wings, I always pay. Mm -hmm. And often 
the trader or their staff will say, no, you don't have to pay, Jay. They say, yes, I do have to pay. I have to pay here because you have to pay at the bar. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I think anybody who's worked in hospitality will insist on paying because they know yeah. how bloody hard it is and how tight the margins can be and in those early days how much support you need. Uh, but you're right, there, you know, there certainly were a lot of a lot of arseholes in the industry or a lot of people who are doing it because they wanted a trophy or they wanted to get piss on the cheap. I tell you what, there are still a lot of arseholes around this industry. That's the problem now. We are under a lot of scrutiny and comment and criticism from people who aren't involved in the industry, but love it and want to be part of it. And so they write about it or they review it on TripAdvisor or they tweet about it or they just, you know, they're pests. They know nothing about what it's like to work in this industry. They don't know what we care about or what we're like as humans, as people. Then they just see something want to have a go at it. Just because you've written a blog or, you know, you've got 500 followers on Instagram for your food shots doesn't mean you have the right to assume things about anybody. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I think um, it's, I don't know where that comes from. And there's a lot of schadenfreude. There's a, there's a kind of can't wait for people to strip up, to knock them down and to sort of like gloat over their perceived failure or, you know, uh, criticism. I think, I, I don't know where... I suppose that's because everybody's just that's that's the online world we live in. Yeah, exactly. And I think so often, especially with TripAdvisor, it's because it's anonymous and because people can make a sandwich or can make their own lunch, they think they know about food and drink. Whereas people aren't really going to say they can do law or accountancy. They get it, specialists, but they don't respect hospitality. You know, the, 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 I, I make this point about if you're selling cars and you might sell ten cars a week, maybe, and then maybe that's a busy week and it's only ten transactions to manage. But we're managing thousands and thousands of transactions mm. every day. Yeah. So there's an inevitability that some of those transactions will go wrong and a drink yeah. will be too cold or too hot or, or a glass will be chipped or whatever it might be it's just because it's thousands and thousands of transactions so even at half a percent failure rate you're going to piss some people off I know. but people don't get it I mean it, it happened recently when the Jamie Oliver restaurants went under mm-hmm. you know and the amount of criticism he I mean he never saw anything he doesn't give a shit about it but the things that people said about him and his business you know fucking clueless yeah. Abs- you know there's that phrase shard and boner you get that's when think Veep coined that phrase, people just getting aroused at someone else's failure. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's a there's a real yeah. issue with that. And so often it's the people who are sat on their couches and have never actually tried to do it and don't get yeah. the complexity of just how hard it is. And I know with the restaurant that closed recently, you said, you know, it, it is a hard industry. It's a tough yeah. industry, particularly the the kind of the food-led side of it, I think, and the changes in the last couple of years in, in pension costs and food costs and the, and the legislation that goes around it and that squeeze margin. I sympathise with Jamie. You know, the, the market shifted and it's changed and uh, yeah. it's it's tough out there. And it's, again, one of the reasons for doing this podcast is I didn't, I don't want the high street just to become dominated by the formulaic big money VC backed people who can squeeze the margins and, and, and get those efficiencies yep. because that would make the world dull and it needs to be interesting it needs to be vibrant it needs to be energetic so it needs constant kind of new independence coming into it well that will be great and that will continue I'm sure outside of London but not in the current licensing and planning environment we've got in yeah. this city and that's and going to have to well it's, that. it's the same yeah and it's the same in Bournemouth you know one of the triggers for this podcast was was when three and a half thousand covers were added overnight and in, in, in London that wouldn't be much but in our town you know it was a lot it's not a lot in August when yeah. we're busy but it's a lot in January and February and all of those covers were under one roof and they're all VC back chain restaurants and they're yeah. all boring and dull and formulaic and none of them are a reason to live in the town or even for tourists to enjoy the town it's just a box ticking exercise yeah. and that kind of stuff frustrates me but I'm not 
you know, there's there's a place for them, and and, and it's it's in some ways it's nice to have both. But the reason for having these conversations so that people just think about when they're walking down the high street, you know, go left into a into mm. a chain or go right into some sort of fierce independent or some yeah street food vendor or something that's going to be the next kind of cool thing. And I just hope people people think about it a little bit more, and it makes the world less beige and yeah. more interesting, which you do as well. So thank you. If people want to follow your uh, rants, I mean perspectives on uh, on life, what's the best place for if if they want to come to street feast, but if also if they want to follow you personally where should they do that well our website streetfeast.com and all our sites are on there east and southeast london um i think yeah i mean go to more than one site if you're gonna if you're gonna make the effort to come i think dinerama is a great one to end the night on or get there later sort of um and i'm on twitter i'm downy jd uh, on twitter uh, and instagram but i'm not really on instagram much i just use that as like a personal photo library um yeah, that's it, really. Perfect. And then uh, last one, but what's next? Um, well, we are we are desperate to open more sites, and it's just trying to find the right one. We're chasing two sites in central London and ten sites in Manchester. We'll probably, you know, I'd love to do one, two, three sites by the end of next year, all large scale, you know, venues. Um, but you know, we've been trying for a good eighteen months now. I think it's two years. Yeah, the last time I opened a site that's still open is two years ago. Right. Is so, that the longest period you've been without? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Opening. Yeah. I mean, you have an arrest or are you getting frustrated? No, no, I'm getting really bored. I'm really getting bored. I yeah. see that. Yeah. yeah. You come down to Bournemouth, I've got a site I could do with some, uh, <laughs> do with some advice on. Uh, well, uh, good luck and thanks for just making the world of hospitality both more interesting because what you've pulled off with Street Feast, I think it's bang on vogue. It feels feels like a festival. It ticks so many boxes. It just It just feels great but also for doing that with a leaven of professionalism and without the kind of bullshit of of just making it you know different for the sake of being different i, I your your kind yeah. of commercial perspective where it's got to make money and it's actually got to be successful and it's got to be run professionally mm. is is brilliant so mm. uh, thanks for doing what you do and, and thanks even more for sparing the time to have a chat with me we've, we've talked for quite a while so no we better, problem we better bugger off and let people get on with their days but uh thank you you're welcome anytime So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.